Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 10th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Brian Curtis of The Ringer to talk about ESPN's decision to suspend Jamel Hill and Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones's directive to his players about standing for the national anthem. Yahoo's Jeff Passan will also be here to talk about the first week of the baseball playoffs and how a typically change-averse game has made a radical shift when it comes to pitcher usage. And Roger Bennett of Men and Blazers will be with us to revel in the soccer-playing majesty of Iceland, which just became the smallest nation ever to qualify for the World Cup. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Congratulations, Stefan. I'm excited, too. I'm excited about Iceland. You know, it's not quite handball-level Iceland, but it's pretty impressive. It's a good Iceland. It's good. All Iceland is good Iceland, Josh. Top Iceland. On Sunday in Indianapolis, Vice President Mike Pence left the game between the Colts and 49ers in a premeditated gesture that was supposed to look like spontaneous disgust. Pence's boss, Donald Trump, congratulated him for his valor. Well, Cowboys owner Jerry Jones said after his team's loss to the Packers that if any of his players disrespects the flag, then we will not play, period. That night, Jamel Hill, the ESPN anchor who you might recall referred to Donald Trump as a white supremacist on Twitter, which led to the White House calling for her firing, noted that Jones had signed notorious domestic abuser Greg Hardy and had then proceeded to call him one of the real leaders on this team. She also said Jones had put black Cowboys players in an untenable position, writing, if they don't kneel, some will see them as sellouts. She followed that up with, don't ask Dak, Daz, and other Cowboys players to protest. A more powerful statement is if you stop watching and buying their merchandise. And then the coup de grace, she quoted somebody who listed Cowboys sponsors like AT&T and Bank of America, writing, this play always works. Change happens when advertisers are impacted. ESPN responded by suspending Hill for two weeks for a second violation of our social media guidelines, explaining that individual tweets may reflect negatively on ESPN and that such actions have consequences. And to close the loop, naturally, our dumb president tweeted on Tuesday morning with Jamel Hill at the mic. (laughs) What the fuck, Donald Trump? With Jamel Hill at the mic, it is no wonder ESPN ratings have tanked. In fact, tanked so badly It is the talk of the industry. Speaking of which, Brian Curtis, editor at large for uh, The Ringer, industry titan. He wrote a fantastic profile of Jamel Hill that came out a month ago that we'll link to on our show page. He's also the co-host, along with David Shoemaker, a.k.a. The Masked Man, of the Press Box podcast, which comes out each and every Thursday. Hello, Brian. How are you? I'm good. Uh, The talk of the industry. (laughs) Putting together that intro this morning, I felt like... That uh, Charlie Kaufman in the scene from Adaptation where he decides, <laughs> let's start from the beginning of time. Um, yeah, a lot of layers here. 
This all goes back to Colin Kaepernick, or maybe it goes back to Fred Trump getting arrested at a KKK rally in 1927. <laughs> I can't quite decide. It is This is like a seven-layer dip of, like, screwiness. And on Sunday, just the convergence of, like, the Jerry Jones and Jamel Hill and Donald Trump stuff was, like, the, sing- the singularity of the NFL culture wars. Where, what stuck out for you? Really, I think the Jerry Jones part was the most surprising part to me. Because as a Cowboys fan, Dallas-Fort Worth native, etc., and a jury watcher for most of my adult life, I'm kind of shocked he came out with a really hardcore political stance like that. That is not the Jerry Jones I know. If there's like any through-line principles through Jerry's life, they are number one, make money. And number two, support Cowboys players that you think can help the team win at all costs, no matter what they do, which is, you know, we've all read has typically been, you know, Michael Irvin attacking a teammate with scissors or, you know, Greg Hardy or or whatever, excusing numerous off the field transgressions. But I don't know. I don't quite understand why this is, you know, so different than that. I mean, that's, this is, that's, I guess that's what surprises me so much is like, why would he plant his foot here? when clearly there's a downside to winning games on the field and sticking up for his players. I find that really odd. What I also find odd about it is that Jones, of course, has never been shy about taking on the NFL. I mean, he sued his partners back in the 1990s um, over marketing rights and changed basically the economic structure of the league. Um, Also took on the NFL recently when Ezekiel Elliott got suspended, which gets back to Brian's point about defending players, even when they're accused of doing things that some might consider indefensible. Right. So is Jerry Jones' behavior here a sort of insult to Roger Goodell because Goodell has taken a more um, open approach to this, less confrontational with the players and seemingly slightly, you know, in an NFL way, of course, tepid, but, you know, at least it's some confrontation. Um, not kowtowing to what Trump has been tweeting, not engaging the president. Um, I just can't figure out what Jones's motivation here. Is he worried about his fan base? Is he worried about... Yeah, I mean, that's so... I mean, that's I mean, the I only thing the I can figure. Here. And by the way, to add another, uh, another data point to the Jerry Jones timeline that you didn't see a lot on Twitter over the last 48 hours is Jerry Jones signed Michael Sam, by the way, when that guy was not uh, being signed and or drafted by a lot of teams in the NFL. And, you know, the quote-unquote distraction, whatever you want to say about that, like he was, happy to, he was happy to sign him. Never made the active roster, but, you know, Michael Sam was a, was a member of the Dallas Cowboys for a I while. I don't know if so. you ever wrote this, Brian, but I remember we talked um, a couple months ago, and you told me you thought Jerry Jones might have signed Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, I did. And so I agree with that. I think in a, in, a, in, a, in a past, in a counterfactual man in the high castle where they don't draft <laughs> Dak Prescott and where Tony Romo falls apart as, as he did, I think the Cowboys would have absolutely considered Colin Kaepernick as a one, a quarterback, and two, what Jerry loves most, which is attention, right? Sure. I mean, if suddenly the Cowboys would have become the talk of the league, even if they'd had a crappy, you know, come back with a crappy 4-12 and 12 team or something. In the I man in the high castle. I that's, th- just, that's why this is so odd to me and why it doesn't really make any sense. In the man in the high castle, I think Donald Trump is president, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Stefan mentions the Cowboys fan base. The thing about the Cowboys is their fan base is so big, right? We're not talking about a regional red state Texas audience here. We're talking about America's team. So I would think if Jerry wanted to do anything, it would be to be broadly inoffensive. And if you read that Wickersham Van Natta joint that was in ESPN a couple of, like, what, a week ago now, you know, Jerry was the guy saying, I, I prefer us to stand for the flag, but I think we need to hear these guys out and listen to what they're saying. He was quoted along those lines, like almost a conciliatory voice. Right, let's not so forget. For him to go farther than any NFL owner, right? This is We have not had an NFL owner on the record say, protest and you get benched, right? Jerry is number one. I find that really surprising. Donald Trump called for a boycott of the NFL. I mean... Aligning, aligning with Donald Trump in any way or being even perceived to be aligning with Donald Trump on any of these matters. Because if you start doing what Jerry Jones is threatening to do to players, you're basically putting yourself in opposition to the league's general policy, to your network partner ESPN, because you're tacitly basically agreeing with the president calling out Jamel Hill um, because you're taking a side here and you were taking a side on people who believe that kneeling or protesting in any way during the national anthem 
is some sort of criticism of the flag and the troops and the police and apple pie. Yeah, that's why I keep waiting for like a shoe to drop for us to find out that the Republican tax reform package includes like a carve out for Jerry Jones, <laughs> like their ACA repeal included one for Lisa Murkowski. <laughs> what are we going to get? What are we going to find out that Donald Trump has promised Jerry Jones? Hey, wasn't Trump on the phone with Jones four times last week? He was. I mean, they've been talking a ton. Yeah, that's so. th- that's the thing, Brian, that um, I do think we have to reckon with is the fact that Trump seems to have been working over Jerry. And maybe Jerry thinks that he's working over Trump somehow. Like, there's got to be an angle or a play for him here. But he was one of the seven, the the famous seven NFL owners who chipped in a million dollars for the Trump inauguration. And for how iconoclastic he's been over his tenure as the owner of the Cowboys, he is very typical, right, in his politics. And, it, you know, there weren't that many people on earth who donated a million dollars to the Trump inauguration, and seven of them were in NFL ownership. And so Jerry is kind of commonplace in that sense, too. Yeah, though I also wonder about the politics between billionaires, right? Because we know from all these, you know, great investigative pieces about the Rams moving to L.A. that Jerry likes to be the lead billionaire. (laughs) And are we sure that just because one billionaire got elected president of the United States that Jerry would put himself in a subservient role? I don't know if I believe that. (laughs) I sort of think Jerry, I I, I sort of, I'm with you, I wonder sort of if Jerry thinks he's working over Trump and Trump thinks he's working over Jerry. That's that's business, right? And they're all, they're working all of us over, though. So there you go. So, Stefan, um... Brian is right to point out that that Jones is the lead dog here, that nobody else has come out and said explicitly players will be benched if they don't stand. But Stephen Ross is fascinating, too, because he's a guy who I think of that Van Natta Wickersham story said, you know, two players in this room, like, I don't support Trump. He was very supportive of um, his players protesting. There are guys like Kenny Stills, et cetera, on that team who've protested since last year. And then this, then he came out super strongly and said, our policy is now that you have to stand and I'm not allowing any dissent. And the guys like Stills and two others who had been protesting ended up standing in the tunnel. So something like Weird. Trump is getting to these guys. Or I guess the other notion here is that they just have a really dumb, wrongheaded idea about how to end this. And they think that by enforcing these really strict rules, they're actually making this whole unpleasant episode for their business just come to an end. They think that this will just put right. a stop to it and nobody will pay attention Well, anymore. and I think Dad's been noticed that the NFL actually changed the rule book on what players are required to do um, during the anthem. Before it was should stand for the anthem, but the language seems to have been tightened up in the last week and the NFL PR put out the, uh, the the paragraph from the rule book that now says that there are consequences if you don't show up and stand on the field. Yeah, for like the explicit anthem. penalties explicit. for non-compliance, including like draft losing, choices. losing draft choices. <laughs> the, the, when, you guys, when you guys say that the NFL owners are trying to end this in the most expedient way, let's remember that a week ago they were trying to end it in the most expedient way in a totally different way. By co-opting it. Right. They were trying to co-opt it. So they ultimately, at, and, and, and I think this is, of course, typical and predictable, who gets screwed here? The players. The players get put in this awful position because, look, their jobs are always tenuous, whether it's, you know, because of their behavior on or off the field um, or because there's a shinier, you know, prospect that that's on the waiver wire. Um, these guys have to worry about their jobs every second that they are in the building. And so now they are put in this incredibly horrible position and talk about distractions. So now if they don't protest in some way, they are viewed as part of the cog of the NFL, which a lot of these guys hate. They don't want to be perceived as, you know, as playing for the man here. But if they do protest, suddenly their livelihoods might actually be at risk, which was not, except for Colin Kaepernick, um, a, a reality until now. Yeah, and we got that poll last week that, you know, partly because the owners had, had you know, gone out in the field with the players and partly because Trump had come in on the other side. All of a sudden, what was it, 52% of Americans felt that the protests were appropriate all of a sudden? You know, we'd all resigned ourselves to thinking, okay, the protests are the right thing to do. They'll be unpopular. That's okay. Protest movements are often unpopular. But wait, they're not that unpopular. So I don't know 
if you're an owner and you think, oh well, you know, I'm going to take a slightly unpopular stand with a with a portion of America, I, I don't I don't under, I don't think the popularity of this is is quite as obvious as we think it is, or they think it is. All right, now moving along to phase two of uh, <laughs> our our national obsession with Jamel Hill's tweets. Um, seems like the kind of popular view here is that she got dinged by ESPN this time around for saying that if you feel strongly about Jerry Jones' statement, boycott his advertisers, then there there being a list of said advertisers, this would fall in line with the tradition of ESPN doing whatever it needed to do to please and appease the NFL, which um, it uh, has a major high dollar contract with. Do you think it was as simple as that? I think there. I think it's probably not quite as simple as that. I mean, I think you have to consider one that this was the second "quote unquote" offense in ESPN's eyes. When you read those tweets, I think she she's taking it as an intellectual exercise. If you were upset about this, what would you you Joe fan or Jane fan do about this? That easily got transmuted, as we saw on Twitter uh, this week, into Jamel Hill calls for a boycott of the NFL, which I don't quite think she was doing, or certainly not. With the help of the Daily Caller, who's always happy to transmute. Shockingly, yeah. It's amazing that they landed on that particular line of argument. But I think, you know, I think there's a lot of things going on here. I think there's also this sort of ESPN still feeling its way through this this era of Trump, which is what I wrote about Jamel Hill a month ago, right? That's how do you take people like her that are going to have lots of opinions about lots of things. Your job is to have opinions and be interesting and be edgy and all that stuff and tell them, well, you can be interesting about 75% of stuff, but this other 25%, which happens to be topic A right now in America, you just can't really talk about, or you can't be as interesting about that as you are about the other stuff. And I just think at the end of the day, I don't understand how that works. I just don't understand how you can tell her, don't, don't be interesting about the biggest topic in America. I don't understand how you can tell her to not be interested in the biggest topic in America and, and expect to have her employment uh, continue there. Why would you want to work for, for ESPN if this is the message that it's sending to these, uh, th- these on-air commentators? I mean, you know, we talked about this on the show last week. Journalist is probably a stretch with someone who's hosting SportsCenter on a very topical and opinion-directed show. Um, at what point do people really not want to work there? If you're progressive, if you're African-American, if you want to have these kinds of conversations, when yeah, do you well, say this is not good? Michael and Jamel call themselves former journalists once they became talking heads yeah. out of respect to the, uh, the actual people who are out there grinding. But yeah, you know, and what, one thing that really struck me about Jamel is if we go back about six or seven years, she'd been hired at ESPN as a columnist. She was trying to get a television show. She was being rejected for all kinds of reasons, which she thought had partly to do with the fact that the ESPN and really all of sports TV didn't see a frame in which a woman was on television giving opinions. Right? It was all man, guy versus guy, Skip versus Shannon, and, and um, you know Tony versus Mike and all that stuff. She, at that period in her life, thought, maybe my future is in cable news. Maybe my future is somewhere else. And she said that explicitly to me. I thought I was going to leave ESPN, partly because I couldn't get a gig, but also partly because I wanted to be able to talk about all the kinds of things I want to talk about. And that really hit home. I sort of thought about that yesterday. You know, is that, is that something? And a lot of her friends still think she's going to wind up, and this is, this is, by the way, told to me before all the Trump stuff even started, that she would still someday wind up in cable news. And I sort of wonder if that's a possibility. I wonder if she was thinking, I mean, it now seems reframed in light of what's happened to her. But when she wrote um, the message about black Cowboys players being put in an untenable position and saying, if they don't kneel, some will see them as sellouts. Well, now she's in the position of when she comes back from this two um, week suspension, that people will be watching what she says and what she doesn't say. And she'll be accused of being a sellout or of not being a sellout. And that just puts her in such a terrible position. And, you know, especially considering that ESPN put her in this role specifically, not just to have um, opinions about the biggest issues of the day, but to have opinions that were like in the like 95th percentile 
of, I don't want to say outrageousness because I don't think she's outrageous, but that they're like provocative, that they're provocative. So they are specifically punishing her for doing exactly what she was hired to do. And now they don't want her to do that. And so where does she go? What does she do? If the, the idea of whether a boycott would be effective to protest against a team or a league had been conducted as a segment on the six o'clock sports center, I don't think anybody in ESPN would have cared. It would have been a great segment with a great argument with points brought, brought from both sides. Yeah, and I think, and again, just to go to Josh, when Josh is talking, is, is it that simple? I think part of this is, look, we told you about social media, particularly here you are tweeting things, and you know maybe that's somehow in ESPN's mind figured into the suspension. By the way, I talked to both of them, especially Michael, I think, but, and again, this is way before the Trump stuff, but you're in this historical moment. You guys are being looked to, to you know, to on television to, to say what you really think, and Michael really t- uses the term a lot of time, right side of history, the people will look back at you in this bizarro period of American life and politics and say, did you say the right thing? Were you willing to say the right thing on television? They both think about that. They both really think about that. And and to Josh's point, absolutely she will be. That will be in her head when she comes back to ESPN. It is telling that we've done this entire segment, which will be over soon, <laughs> without mentioning the fact that the president tweeted on Tuesday morning, why is the NFL getting massive tax breaks while at the same time disrespecting our capitalized anthem, capitalized flag, and capitalized country? Change tax law. (laughs) This is the president threatening the NFL. And it's just like doesn't seem interesting or like news anymore. I mean, maybe maybe it seems uh, worth noting to Jerry Jones and Stephen Ross and Roger Goodell, but for me, like where I came out of this weekend was, it seems like we're heading somehow, some way to like an even more like ultimate final like boss battle showdown here. I guess it could just go one of two ways. Like either the owners win and the players just decide that they're just being put in this position where they can't really do anything or it just the confrontation builds and this whole thing gets even bigger and to me it seems like the latter is more likely at this point i would agree just because there's so many different players in this in this game right you have jamel hill a talk show host on espn you have donald trump president of the united states you have jerry jones and then somebody like eric reed right what is what is the way that those four people are going to come together in some sort of agreement? There's just, there's just no way. I mean, those people all have such different, come from such different places. You know, I just don't know what, how we, you know, one of the fantasies we heard after that big weekend of protest in the NFL was, boy, if, if, if these players could just get in the same room as Donald Trump and talk to him. I mean, come on. You know, that's just ridiculous. So I don't know, I don't understand what the, you know, I think at some point, sometimes protest movements just kind of peter out. People get interested in different things. They get interested in pursuing their goals in different ways. That's not crazy. But I don't see this. I, I see getting bigger uh, would be my pick as well, especially when you have the vice president of the United States trying to keep the story at the top of the homepage. This is what he explicitly was doing this week. Brian Curtis is editor at large for The Ringer. You should check out his profile of Jamel Hill, which was very prescient, came out a month ago. Um, you can find it at slate.com slash hangup. We'll link to it. And he's also the co-host with David Shoemaker of the Press Box podcast. It comes out every Thursday. Brian, thank you. Thanks, boys. Before we get to the baseball playoffs, a heads up that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to interrogate our producer, Patrick, about his secret life as a hockey referee, podcast producer by day, ice zebra by night. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag and more bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Here is where the baseball playoffs stand as of this moment. After eliminating Boston three games to one, the Houston Astros are in the American League Championship Series. They will play either the Yankees or Cleveland, who have a Game 5 date on Wednesday. In the National League, the Cubs lead the Nationals two games to one. Game 4 is Tuesday in Chicago after we finish recording this show. The winner will play the Dodgers, who swept Arizona. Yahoo Sports columnist Jeff Passan was in Fenway Park on Monday for Boston against Houston, which he described afterward as a beautiful little baseball game. Now Jeff is in an airport in Kansas City. He joins us now. Hey, Jeff. How's it going, guys? All right, let's stick with Astros Red Sox. Uh, Houston came back to win 5-4. The game kind of encapsulated modern playoff baseball. The starting pitchers didn't last very long. Other starting pitchers relieved, including Cy Young Award candidate Chris Sale and Justin Verlander, who had faced 10,938 batters in his 13-year career, all of them as a starter. Also, home runs were hit, and the game lasted four hours and seven minutes. Uh, and that, in a nutshell, is baseball in October of 2017. And honestly, it, it has been evolving toward this for a really long time. We know that relief pitchers these days are, generally speaking, more effective than starting pitchers. And, you know, when the Cleveland Indians last year rode one starter and essentially two or three relievers to Game 7 of the World Series against a superior team, it showed that you don't have to be a 100-win juggernaut to go out and, and win in the playoffs. When you have five-game series, when you have seven-game series, it's a crapshoot. And uh, this is the most effective and economical way to win that crapshoot. So we know that this is happening. What's interesting to talk about and think about is why it's happening in a game that is, I think, <laughs> rightly criticized for being extremely conservative and slow to change. This has seemed to happen very quickly. The Indians behind Terry Francona, as you said, had huge success riding Andrew Miller and others last year. But this has now become a thing that every team has done. Um, why do you think this um, sea change has happened? Why have managers been so willing to do a thing? Because they're not always willing to do a thing, even if it is the correct thing. I think that this shows the influence of front offices and analytics uh, in manager chairs these days. Let's let's look at the places where it's happened the most. Obviously, uh, in Cleveland, where uh, you know Terry Francona has absolutely no problem doing it. There's a great symbiosis between him and Chris Antonetti uh, and the rest of the front office there. I'd say they they probably have uh, the best front office to. Uh, managerial seat relationship in terms of translating the information and data and applying it on the field. Uh, same thing goes in Chicago. Joe Madden's never really uh, been against doing something novel or trying something new. Uh, the, the new group in Arizona with Mike Hazen and Tori Lovello, same thing. Uh, they had the best starting pitching in baseball this year and had no problem yanking guys early. I, I think ultimately managers realize that this is not a 162-game stretch. You have to do what you can to win on this particular day and put your team in the best position to do so because these victories are so incredibly valuable. And it's why Dusty Baker was as criticized, and rightfully so, I thought, as he was, not just for taking Max Scherzer out necessarily, but for not putting Sean Doolittle or Ryan Madsen, his two best relievers, two of the best probably 10 relievers in baseball this year, into the game at all. He lost the game with Sammy Solis, Brandon Kinsler, and Oliver Perez. Yeah, let's you talk about cannot, that a little bit more. You cannot do that. You yeah, let's, cannot let's, do that. Let's stick with that for a minute. So Max Scherzer was pulled on Monday after having allowed no hits into the seventh inning. Steven Strasburg also carried a no-hitter late into the game. Doesn't this sort of flip the argument? So now you've got a case where traditional baseball strategy might have prevailed. You've got your two best starting pitchers doing incredibly well, and you yank them possibly too soon, and maybe for the wrong relief pitcher. Uh, totally correct and salient point, uh, but I think there's a right way to manage this. 
and the right way was illustrated in Game 3 of the Division Series. I don't know if you guys stayed up late enough to watch it, but you Darvish was spectacular over the first five innings. And then I think the first batter he faced in the sixth was Christian Walker, and he almost hit him when he lost a fastball inside, and then he did hit him on the bill of his batting helmet. And immediately Dave Roberts was out there and took him out. And and to me, that's when you can go out and get a guy. Not when he gives up a hit necessarily because guys are going to give up hits. Not when he walks a guy necessarily because guys are going to walk guys. But when he loses command or when you can tell. And it takes, listen, it takes someone who's really canny and who's been around the game for a long time to be able to, to sort of sniff that out and sense it. But Dusty Baker's been around the game for a really long time. And I'm not trying to do an appeal to authority here by any means, but uh, he, he needs to know better in this situation. And he opened himself up to second guessing. There's no question about it. Max Scherzer obviously did not and never does want to come out. But in this case, if you are going to take a guy out, be aggressive and try and win with your best pitchers, not with, uh, with the, the order that got you there during the regular season. Yeah, back to the idea of why managers, or at least some managers, are embracing this kind of relief first, relief ace philosophy. I think that a lot of these guys played in a different era, and I'm sure that they're nostalgic for the you know time when starting pitchers would go really deep in games. There's something like super manly about it, right? Like, you know, the sure. way that a Nolan Ryan would talk about, oh, I've got to, you know, throw 150 pitches to prove how strong I am. But I think the way that you can, like, flip it in your mind and switch to this idea that I need to bring my starter in is that there is something, like, dumb <laughs> dumb and manly about, like, using your best starter for 75 pitches like Chris Sale did on short rest. Like, I think you can talk yourself into this being a move that, like, embraces toughness and is, is like oh. has, has all of those kind of old school values along with the like new school sabermetric thinking. Absolutely. Justin Verlander, I saw him in the clubhouse yesterday. He had like this, this giddy look on his face. <laughs> like, like, Hey, I was able to come out and, you know, do something I hadn't done before. And it felt good to get out. I mean, it was hysterical to see him and he is, he is the most, routinized starter I have ever seen. Like This is a, a, an amusing Justin Verlander anecdote that I don't know that anyone has written. Justin Verlander, before every start, has to have a chair down in the landing area beneath the dugout. And on this chair are nine towels. Every inning he finishes, he will go down and cleanse himself with one towel. And he may never use that towel again and he always has nine there because he always thinks he is going to finish the game. Do we know how many <laughs> towels he had uh, on uh, on Monday? I you know I <laughs> I don't know the towel count on Monday. I don't know if they even had a towel situation on Monday. One would have to assume there were at least three towels <laughs> down there on Monday. But he, I mean, he had never you know he had never faced anyone in relief before, and he was he said this was going back to little league too, so. When we're talking about managers using guys in roles that they literally never in their lives have been used in before, uh, it just amazes me that we, we talked about it before, the, the way that this has changed so quickly. Baseball does not evolve at this pace. Baseball evolves as it does in life so slowly it's practically imperceptible. Must have been a code red in the clubhouse. The clubbies must have been freaking out. Get those towels. He's up in the bullpen. Oh my God. Uh, The Cleveland Indians, Jeff, have now lost five straight elimination games. Does this ride at all on their psyches? Does this affect Terry Francona as they go back to Cleveland for game five against New York? I imagine it doesn't but I also don't now know how it can't because you sit there, you see what happened in the world series. I mean, they had the world series one last year. Uh, they were up three to one. They, they, they had every chance to shut that out and they didn't do it. And now they go up two Oh on the Yankees after that incredible game two comeback. And now it's two, two with the Yankees. That being said, They've got the best pitcher in the American League 
at home on full rest. And knowing Corey Kluber, uh, he is remarkably pissed off at how the last start went and wants to do everything he can to change that. So we are guilty of this, but the most annoying thing for me about the baseball postseason is, the, in fact, the emphasis on managerial decisions made and not made. So like the Joe Girardi failure to challenge, that was a rare case in which, um, you know, the decision not made had a very clear and discernible effect where if he had challenged this hit by pitch ruling, they would have found on the replay that the ball had tipped off the bat and it would have been a strikeout and they would have been out of the inning. So you wouldn't have had to imagine what would have happened in this sliding door scenario. You know, Lindor wouldn't have hit the grand slam, whatever. But do you feel like when you're writing these game stories or when you're talking about the games that you just pay too much attention to what managers do and don't do and not enough to what the players do? Because I've fear that that's what you know we all do during the playoffs is is this the royal the royal you or or you as in me personally because i try (laughs) i try very hard not to not an accusation just wondering no of course i try very hard not to fall into that trap and if i do by all means i i hope you call me out on it maybe i maybe i've engaged in that on this podcast already uh accusing dusty baker of not using his best relievers uh I feel like second-guessing managers is very easy, especially knowing that most of them these days have far, far greater information at their disposal than we do. And that, to me, is is a really important thing to take into account. They also, they st- they also just make so many decisions per game in the playoffs. Oh, yeah, it, it, not just in the play. I mean, every game, they make an enormous amount of decisions. To me, it's the it, it's the grander philosophical ones rather than the minutia that bothers me. Like, when you're in the playoffs, use your best reliever. That That is something that I think should be sacrosanct, you know, should be done by everybody. And uh, it's not with Dusty Baker in that particular situation. I, I personally am never going to fault a manager for using his best pitcher. Like there was an uproar about AJ Hinch bringing in Verlander yesterday. And, and to me, it, it made complete logical sense. Chris Davinsky was burned. Joe Musgrove uh, had pitched the day before. Wasn't going to give you more than an inning. Probably uh, will Harris, not reliable or not as reliable in high leverage spots at this point, go with your best guy. And That's if, and if they win did. that game and if they win that game, they get what three days off. They win that game, they get three days off, and Verlander could come back in game two. Dallas Keuchel could have started game five. Now he gets to start game one. I mean, to me, that was a no-brainer, and Hinch got pilloried for it, which I just did not understand. All right, my, my last comment is that my favorite um, development so far in the postseason is that the term bullpenning seems to be catching on. Bullpen as a hey, noun are, to use your are, are you are you, are you a big Brian Kenny fan? Uh, I don't know, but I've noticed it in multiple stories. Has Kenny been propagating this term? Oh, God, he's just been all over. I mean, the the ego boost that Brian Kenny is getting this postseason is going to turn more obnoxious than he already is. And and I say that Brian is, Brian is a friend, and I say that with all the love in the world. But it's like his entire worldview is being validated within a 10-day span to start the playoffs right now. And he's just walking around with this cocksure smile on his face like uh, the, the nerds have won. We have defeated them. Let's hear it for the nerds. Jeff Passan is a baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports and the author of The Arm Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports, which is out in paperback. Jeff, thanks a lot. Pleasure as always mine, boys. Enjoy the rest of the playoffs. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Monday in Reykjavik, 
the Iceland national soccer team took down Kosovo 2 to nil to earn its way to the 2018 World Cup in Russia. Iceland was the Cinderella of the 2016 European Championships, beating England in the round of 16 before bowing out to France in the quarterfinals. And who can forget, totally unrelatedly... I cannot forget. <laughs> ...that Iceland also won the silver in team handball at the 2008 Olympics. Never forget. But back to the subject at hand, <laughs> Iceland, with a population of 335,000, is the smallest nation ever to qualify for the World Cup, topping 2006 attendee Trinidad and Tobago, which has 1.3 million people. Joining us now to discuss the terrifying rise of Iceland, which will one day destroy us all, is Roger Bennett. He's the co-host of the Men and Blazers podcast and TV show. He made a short documentary for Vice Sports last year called We Are Vikings, The Unbelievable Rise of Iceland Soccer. Roger, thanks for joining us. Oh, Josh and Stefan, it's a joy to be with you. There are a few things in life that I enjoy talking about more than the rise and rise of football's hottest micropower, Iceland. <laughs> So how did you uh, finagle your way to make a documentary about Iceland? That, I think, is the bigger accomplishment of them qualifying for the World Cup. A um, um, couple of reasons. I mean, I'm always fascinated by everything Icelandic, the writing of Sean, the music of Bjork, uh, the fact that they use it as the Game of Thrones set for uh, the wildings north of the wall. But I'm always fascinated, to be candid, about American football and what this country can do uh, to improve its world standing. So when I was watching the Icelandic team take on all comers in qualifying for the last big tournament, the Euros, two years ago, I wanted to try and understand why this nation of 330, 335,000, roughly as big as Corpus Christi, Texas, won 100,000th of the U.S. population, what they are doing that is so right that the U.S. could uh, could learn from in terms of our own development, of our own game, our own youth, uh, on our own footballing future. And that's what's so remarkable to me. This is five years. You know, we are still laboring in the United States and get you know exultant at the prospect of, oh, my God, we can beat Trinidad on Tuesday night and make it's it gone. to another World Cup. And Iceland... Tiny Iceland, cute Iceland, vacation Mecca Iceland <laughs> has yeah. eased its way through its group and into, into the World Cup. Again, I mean, it got into the Euros and everybody thought that would be uh, a one-off. Their, their emotional highlight, of course, facing mighty England uh, and destroying them quite handily 2-1 uh, on their way to a darling run to the quarterfinals. But no, they are back at the World Cup, which is like their difficult second album, probably the best one since Nirvana's never mind. And, and, and as you're hinting, Stefan, this, none of this is a surprise. None of this is accidental. It's all part of a thoughtful, strategic plan, which, uh, you know, has evolved in the doing like any great plan. But it's about careful investment. Part of it, we should acknowledge, Iceland is, is tiny. That's part of its brilliance. It's part of its strength. The United States is almost too vast, too big. To, to jerry-rig a massive youth development plan. Um, but this rise uh, in Icelandic football, it's come from a, a huge investment in coaching on this tiny island. Um, they have invested in the education of elite, elite coaches, A-licensed UEFA European coaches. They have 600 of them, which is one for every 550 Icelanders. Uh, compare that to England, where we have one for every 11,000. So they have a battalion of unbelievable football coaches, uh, which is something, to be candid, um, that the United States could truly um, uh, deal with. We would love to have the kind of elite coaching that's just common uh, in Iceland. They've hotwired the whole uh, nation to become an incubator of great footballing talent. They've built these huge artificial fields, what they call soccer houses, soccer house all over the country, even the smallest fishing village of 7,000 I visited has uh, a huge heated indoor um, house. artificial, yeah, an artificial, when, they, when I went there, um, it was how I imagined the rise of ping pong under, under Chairman Mao. I watched several hundred three-year-olds being given detailed technical training by 30 elite coaches who could be coaching kind of men's teams, 18, 19, 20, but it's a badge of honor for their young coaches 
to train the youngest uh, generation of footballers, these three, four-year-olds who were truly loving the game technically. Brilliant. But they, the joy in that room, it was just a wonder to see. Um, I, will, I do have to correct you on one thing, Roger. If Please. If um, Iceland population was really one one-hundred-thousandth of the U.S., then we would have 33 billion people, which would be cool, but... Sounds a slightly slightly too large. It's crowded. I I do have a question what, though what, about what one one thousand. Yeah, yeah. I thought you said one one hundred thousand. I think but, you did. Uh, You're no, just no, getting excited, have, and that's okay, Roger. We have we have one. Uh, we, we have thirty three billion people just uh, living in New York City, uh, Josh. <laughs> but go on. The, the 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 reality is the 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 other element in which they are unbelievable, and that we can really learn from is the mentality of the Icelanders, not just the footballers, but the whole nation. I mean, they are, their national confidence is is remarkable. They have a captain, Aaron Gunnarsson, uh, who plays now second-tier AAA football uh, in, 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 uh, in Wales for Cardiff City. And he truly believes, when you speak to him, that he is a Viking, that Viking blood runs through uh, his veins. And they just beaten the Netherlands twice when I met him. And, and I said to I, I said to him and to the best player on the team, Gilfie Sigurdsson, um, who plays for for Everton, uh, one of the great powerhouses uh, in world football. If you're not familiar with um, uh, with the game, Gilfie and Aaron Gunnarsson, I, I said to him, when you played the Netherlands before kickoff, did you did you feel fear? Did you could you believe that your tiny country could beat this great power? And they both looked at me like I was mad. And they said, no, we always thought we'd win every game, even when we weren't winning every game, even when we were be- being beaten three or four nil. We all, before kickoff, we always believed absolutely and completely that we would win the game, which is in complete opposite to the American footballing mentality when we weren't very, if you speak to a 1980s US football player and you ask them, what did you think before you played Mexico? They would say the coach used to send us out and say, don't get beaten too badly. Don't just don't embarrass yourselves. And it's that gap, that tenacious mentality that Icelanders take to everything that they've taken to the game of football that's really set them up so well. So here's the thing that I don't quite understand. You mentioned Mao and uh, table tennis, and you usually think of nationwide projects like this one, the like you know soccer field in every pot, or, or however you'd want to describe it, as being kind of the province of a totalitarian regime. Like a country that really wants to make its mark on the world through sport. That's like not necessarily what you would associate with a a tiny peaceful nation like Iceland. So what are they what's their project here? Like why do they care about winning in international football so much? I should be clear, they do it with such joy. They do it with such joy. And in that room of several hundred, three, four-year-olds trotting around effortlessly with a, with a ball at their feet, they, the joy in that room was, was the thing that I took away from it. And their ethos is to make the game utterly accessible to every kid. So it's the, the, in youth development in England, Youth, uh, youth development is about making elite footballers. We're not very good at it, but that's what we pretend. And ruthlessly at the top levels, they will just they will focus on producing one, two, three, four good kids, and you dispose of the rest. But there's a, in Iceland, they see sport, all sports. You mentioned handball or, or, um, earlier, which is also uh, remarkable. They've got an obsession with the strongest man in the world competition. Uh, which they uh, they also excel, but they, they, they want they have a very democratic approach to sport and, and health um, in general, and it, it's not just about breeding uh, the elite in in terms of some eerie East German circa 1981 um, kind of national program. It's about health, it's about wellness, it's about joy through sport, and it's something to be candid that uh, that we could all learn from, and, and they do it. They do it with a mentality. There's a word that I learned from Iceland, which I think about almost every day, and it's it's their approach to um, to to child rearing, uh, to life, to to everything. They, they have a word which is not really translatable, and it's not really pronounceable by me. It's duglegur, and I apologise to all your Icelandic listeners because I've probably just butchered it. Duglegur. And and when one of them said to me, it means industrious, tenacity. It means work harder. And one of them said to me, you know, when you are when you have a kid 
and that kid takes it for its first steps. In America, you say, well done, you know, well, keep it up, you're amazing, well, you validate, you validate. We said an Icelandic parent, when their kid takes the first steps, we shout, Dúglagor, which means work harder, do more. And they bring that to the way they, they train football, they do that to the way they play football. Dúglagor is important, but I think it was also important that Iceland was drawn into Group 1 for World Cup qualification in Europe, along with Croatia, Ukraine, Turkey, Finland, and Kosovo. That didn't hurt. And I'm not complaining because I want to see the Icelandic fans do their clapping thing, their synchronous overhead, thunderous, thunderstick, human thundersticks um, in Russia. So easy group. I'm sure your listeners in Croatia, in Ukraine, and in Turkey are all scratching their heads saying, you know, I normally believe everything uh, that Stefan says, every word that comes out of his mouth. But I have to tell you, when they were drawn in that group, Iceland, um, they, were, they were mortified. They were a team that had just lived a dream in the Euros where... Uh, 10,000 of Icelanders went over, cheered the team everywhere, thrilled the world with their Viking clap. So Lars Lagerbeck, this Swedish, this, this stern Swedish taskmaster um, who'd, who'd been seen as really the, the other element in, in their rise, this outsider who the Icelandic footballers feared and revered. He left the team after the Euros, left them in the hands of his co-coach, really his number two, um, an Icelander called Jaime Halmgrunsson. Uh, who's famous um, as a the world's greatest part-time dentist, part-time football coach, grew up on a remote part of Iceland, a tiny island where there's more puffins than there are people. One of the most glorious, one of the most glorious men I have encountered and interviewed in football. Just a man who who approaches football, who approaches life with this eternal optimism, who on the evening of big games for Iceland goes into the Iceland fan bar before kickoff, an hour before kickoff, and briefs the fans on his game plan uh, because he wants the fans to know about the team and exactly what they're going to try and do. He believes that as a value. Despite being outnumbered by Puffins, Roger Bennett made a documentary about the Icelandic football team for Vice Sports. It's called We Are Vikings, The Unbelievable Rise of Iceland Soccer. You can also catch him on the Men in Blazers multimedia experience. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, gents. Dooglego. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. And as Roger Bennett mentioned, the manager of the Iceland soccer team is Heimer Holgrimsson. He, uh... You know, there's probably a bunch of interesting stuff about him. Led his team to the World Cup, et cetera. But part-time dentist. Not a full-time dentist, not a no-time dentist, but a part-time dentist. I think that's something that we can all aspire to. Should got to coach a soccer to. team. It'd be hard if he were a full-time dentist and the head coach of the Icelandic soccer team. They've got that... Uh, Duglagor. Thank you, Duglagor. But let's put Duglagor aside for a second. Stefan, what is your part-time dentist? By the time you hear this, the U.S. men's national soccer team may have qualified for the 2018 World Cup with a win or draw Tuesday night at Trinidad and Tobago, or not. But let's go back to last week when Josie Altidore scored the third goal in the crucial 4 to nothing route of Panama on a penalty kick. Here's the call on Univision. The key word there was not suavecito, Josh. It was 
Panenka. That is the name for the technique that Josie used to take the penalty. Instead of drilling the ball hard into a corner of the net, he chipped it softly into the space vacated by the diving goalkeeper. The Panenka is among that small handful of sports terms named for the person who invented it, like your Salkow in figure skating, named for Ulrich Salkow of Sweden, or your Corellin lift in wrestling, Alexander Corellin of Russia, your Fosbury flop for the American high jumper, Dick Fosbury, Cruyff turn soccer, Johan Cruyff. There's a whole wiki of these, by the way, Josh, which could be a future afterball. The Panenka, though. It's named after Antonin Panenka, a midfielder for Czechoslovakia who scored 139 goals in his club career in Prague and after he was allowed to leave in Vienna from 1967 to 1985. Panenka scored 17 more goals for the Czechoslovak national team, none more famous than the one that would bear his name, the game winner against West Germany in a penalty shootout in the final of the 1976 European Championship. Panenka took a long run-up to scope out the keeper, Sepp Meyer. Meyer dove left. Panenka lofted the ball into the vacant space, and the game was over. Panenka. Goal! Goal! The maestri Europe! The decision to go soft wasn't a spur-of-the-moment one. In a 2015 story in These Football Times, one of the countless interviews that Panenka has given about the Panenka, Panenka described practicing the shot with his team's keeper, and he did it in 10 or so actual games. This being the 1970s behind the Iron Curtain, his secret was safe from other international clubs. But once Panenka Panenka'd in the Euro final, the Panenka became a thing. It's been deployed ever since by huge name players in big games, bigger names even than Josie Altador in a CONCACAF qualifier against Panama. Pelé called it the work of either a genius or a madman. There are video compilations of Panenkas all over YouTube, as well as video compilations of failed Panenkas, most hilariously when the keeper doesn't move and he just catches the ball, which is lofted sweetly into his arms. Let's listen to a few of these calls. Here's Sebastian Abreu of Uruguay doing it against Ghana in the 2010 World Cup quarterfinals. They all stand arms around one another. It is Abreu. It's the cheekiest chip you've ever seen. And it's good enough to take the South Americans into the semifinals of the World Cup. That's an important clip because in English, announcers almost universally describe the Panenka as cheeky. So let's hear some French. This is Zinedine Zidane doing it against Italy at the 2006 World Cup. Zidane's Panenka struck the crossbar and landed a foot inside the line. For sheer announcer enthusiasm at screaming the word Panenka, I've got to go with Sergio Ramos of Spain scoring to send out Portugal at the 2012 Euro semifinals. Por Dios, por España, Ramos! Panenka himself described this next one, Lionel Messi's 2015 Panenka in a league game, as the best executed Panenka that he has ever seen. And it really is beautiful. But even more than the Messi artistry, I love the way the announcer says Panenka here. Gol de Leo Messi, casi nueve minutos de la primera mitad, amagó. Leo Messi a lo Panenka acabó metiendo el primero del partido Barça 1 Getafe 0 Alo Panenka that is beautiful finally it is important to reiterate that as i said earlier the Panenka is not universally recognized as a term in soccer. I think a lot of casual fans don't know what the Panenka is and this call of Andrea Pirlo of Italy calmly chipping one home against England in the 2012 Euros demonstrates that. It's Pirlo. Oh, and he's clipped it in down the middle and the coolest player on the pitch has stayed that way. That is quite incredible. Remember all those years ago in the European Championships, Penenka, 
Can he start that off? Yes, he did start that off, Josh. Panenka, panenka, panenka. Josh, what is your part-time dentist? Over the weekend, I read a short piece in praise of Morgan Hurd, the 16-year-old American who won the all-around title at the World Gymnastics Championships. Hurd, who finished sixth at the U.S. Championships earlier this year, was not expected to contend, and yet she finished at the top of the podium where she flashed teeth covered in braces and showed off the eyeglasses that she'd worn throughout the competition. Hurd, who affixes her frames to her head with a neoprene strap, is a spectacles pioneer. Gymnastics types could not recall another competitor who'd worn glasses at the senior level, but she has plenty of forebears. Among them is Will Whoopla White, who played baseball for the Boston Red Caps, the Cincinnati Reds of the National League, the Detroit Wolverines, and the Cincinnati Red Stockings of the American Association. That was from 1877 to 1886. White got his nickname in 1878 when the Cincinnati Inquirer celebrated his four-hitter with the headline, Whoopla William. He is not to be confused with William Edward White, the 19th century ball player Stefan has written about, who seems to be the first black player in Major League history. Whoopla White, though, is a pioneer in his own right, as he's credited as the first glasses-wearing major leaguer. Wikipedia quotes a 1900 piece from The Sporting Life, which notes that White was about the only pitcher of consequence who wore glasses. He had great control of the ball, and he could land one over the plate whenever he wanted, to notwithstanding he was handicapped by weak eyes. It's an equally significant milestone, I have to say. He was also featured in a column that appeared in various newspapers in July and August 1911, coincidentally just before Whoopla White drowned at a summer home in Ontario, Canada. The headline of that column, which appeared before he drowned in a summer home, was Few Eyeglassed Players. The subhead, Some Excellent Talent is Overlooked Because of Ban on Spectacled Performers. The unbylined piece begins with a quote from Old Dan Brothers. There are no players now in the fast company who wear glasses to remedy defects of the eyes. Old Dan Brothers continued, Of course, the sunfielders of every club wear glasses while chasing flies in the garden, but they are smoked glasses with plain lenses and have nothing to do with the sight of the performer. Blackburn of the White Sox, I am told, wears glasses now while off the field, and if this is the case, his faulty sight may have been the cause of his poor showing, both at the bat and in the field during the past season. You burnt, Blackburn. Old Dan Brothers goes on and on. The column is just one long quote from Old Dan Brothers, basically. One of the highlights of his soliloquy is, Long ago, I saw the second baseman of the University of Virginia, McGuire, playing the infield with enormous spectacles, like those they put on German professors in a caricature. And this McGuire was there strong with the bat and on the middle station. He'd have made a crack professional, glasses and all, if he had wanted to go into the game. And then he got to whoopla. Will White, I suppose, was the last of the eyeglassed professionals, nearsighted as Roosevelt, and Teddy could play a good game of ball, I'll bet. White was nevertheless a great pitcher. He had the curves, the speed, and all sorts of scientific trickery. As batsman, White was the limit. He batted, I think, about 0-0-3 each season. The The poor fellow couldn't hit a blamed thing and toward the latter part of his career, simply swung the bat three times and retreated benchward. Now, this was actually a vicious slander from old Dan Brothers, as White hit 183 on his career, far from 003. 003 would be tough. That's basically like one for 333. It's pretty bad. That is quite bad. In 1884, Whoopla even hit a home run. So fellow glasses wearers, don't listen to old Dan Brothers. You can do anything you set your mind and your four eyes to. Whoopla. Whoopla. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and to subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. All of you word freaks should also check out Lexicon Valley. It's a podcast about language. Recent episodes have tackled efforts to revive endangered Native American languages the history and evolution of no and not, and how languages around the world develop similar words for mom and dad. 
hosted by linguist, author, and Columbia University professor John McWhorter. Lexicon Valley appears every other Tuesday. To learn more, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. I'm Josh Levine for Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.